Cornelius Van Til, The Intellectual Challenge of the Gospel, and I believe this is part three, and uh, Cornelius Van Til, THM, PhD, late professor of uh, Westminster Theological Seminary uh, near Philadelphia. Uh, this was a, a lecture given in 1950 in England, and we're continuing from last week. What is true of the doctrine of creation is equally true of the doctrine of providence and of miracle. The modern man will gladly accept any and all of these doctrines, if only they may be taken as brute facts. When he accepts these doctrines, the modern man acts as an irrationalist. Of course, he says, we want the idea of providence and of miracle. We are open-minded and ready to receive any and every fact for which reasonable testimony can be given. Perhaps the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus are well-attested facts. Why should we not receive them? And if you say that you have been born again, we will accept your testimony to this fact at face value. <clears throat> it is here that the evangelical or conservative is likely to fall into a trap. For the moment he sees only the irrational face of modern man. He does not realize that as soon as the doctrines of providence or miracle are accepted by the modern mind, they are also destroyed. As an irrationalist, the modern man will readily accept all the facts of Paul's gospel. But as a rationalist, he will classify and naturalize them and naturalize them, and thus destroy every one of these facts. The facts of Christianity will be accepted as raw recruits, but the finished soldier is the raw recruit classified and drilled on the authority of man himself. And he's meaning molded by human autonomy. The main point that we are concerned to make is this, in this section, is this. That the Arminians, uh, although in distinction from Roman Catholics, they claim to stand firm upon the Bible, as the final revelation of God, are yet unable to challenge effectively the methodology of modern man. Their doctrine of free will makes them a ready prey to the modern notion of contingency, or, or a chance universe. Their refusal to accept the doctrine of the all-controlling plan of God is itself of a rationalistic character. It assumes that that cannot be true, which man cannot penetrate exhaustively by logic. Thus it is to be expected that they will also fall prey to the modern idea of rationalism. We come to a new section, history. It should be noted in particular that neither pure irrationalism nor pure rationalism appear by themselves in modern thought. The two are usually kept in balance with one another. And it is precisely this balance that makes the total product so deceptive for the unwary Christian. The aspect of pure contingency or irrationalism, has received great emphasis in our day. And this emphasis comes to expression in the idea of history so much as the, to the forefront of discussion in recent times. It is the recent concept of history as entertained by modern philosophers and theologians that appears, at first sight, to hold out an olive branch to historic Christianity. Certain underlying principles of the modern view of history may, be first, may first be enumerated. Number one. Basic to all other considerations is the fact that the modern view of history is anti-metaphysical or phenomenalistic. In this, the philosophy of history is but following the trend of modern post-Kantian philosophy. Modernistic theologians anxiously seek to adjust the doctrines of Christianity to the phenomenalistic trend of modern philosophy. The essence of phenomenal phenomenalism is a nice balance between rationalism and ir irrationalism. Number two. The rationalistic or deterministic element in phenomenalism appears most prominently in the conception in the conception of science. 
Science is usually spoken of as a body of well-known and well-established laws. Scientific knowledge is therefore said to deal with the impersonal and mechanical. So far as history falls in the field of physical observable facts, it too, as well as physics proper, is thought of as impersonal. Yet it is the irrationalistic or contingency aspect of phenomenalism that appears most prominently when history is directly the subject for discussion. History is then said to be the realm of free personality as over against the realm of impersonal, as found in such areas as physical science. It is when this irrationalist aspect is in the foreground that supernatural revelation in unique historical in unique historical fact and even miracles, seems to be recognized as quite proper for modern man to accept. Number four. The distinction between the realm of the impersonal and the realm of the personal involves absolute dualism. But the modern mind cannot end with dualism. Moreover, the idea of determinism as involved in the realm of the impersonal is in itself directly and obviously destructive of knowledge. The same may also be said with respect to the realm of pure contingency by itself. Some sort of union between the two realms must therefore be affected. If the principle of union is taken from the realm of the impersonal, then it obviously cannot allow for any of the facts of Christianity. Okay, and that's why modernists and that's why uh, atheists say that, they just simply say, well, uh, going back to David Hume, uh, well, miracles are simply impossible because that goes against the laws of nature. They're impossible. On the other hand, if the principle of union is taken from the realm of personality, you have to end in the nature of a limiting concept. It will then have to be pure protection, projection of an ideal, such as has never in any sense been realized on earth. It is in this that finds expression in the Christological principle of recent theology. All the doctors of Christianity may then be accepted, but accepted through after a thorough metamorphosis. No pretense is made, of course, of being able to trust fully the development of recent thinking on the problem of history as related to Christianity along these lines. The contention is merely that these elements of impersonalism and personalism are both present in, re in the recent views. And that is in the realm of personalism that currently predominates over the realm of impersonalism. A. Impersonalism. In the first place, when the mood is that of an impersonal of impersonal science, then the attitude of modern theologians is that of great assurance. Queen Victoria was in her later life much disturbed as to whether she need believe in Jonah's whale and Balaam's ass. And many cleverer people than the Queen felt it a wonderful liberation when they were set free from the bondage to the letter of the Old Testament myths. And that's a quote of, from Alan Richardson, The Redemption of Modernism. No date. Queen Victoria and the people of her time had been missiled by the traditional view of, view of Scripture. Men were then in terrible bondage. Modern scientific, literary, and historical criticism had not yet been applied to the Bible. Accordingly, the cosmological speculations of men about ultimate causation were accepted as literal truth. For example, macroevolutionary theory. The process of, of n ent Mythologisesung of scripture had not yet been accomplished. That's from Germanistic, German theology. Accordingly, men still thought that their eternal weal or woe depended on their right attitude towards certain facts that had happened in the past, such as the death, the physical resurrection, and the stratospheric ascension into the real heaven of a man named Jesus, who was said to be the Son of God. 
the religious function of imagination had not yet been discovered. And there he references in a footnote Richard Croner, the religious function of imagination. Accordingly, men still thought that ultimate truth was conveyed to them through the intellectual concepts or notions. When they found the idea of perfect being to be full of intellectual antinomies, they were in great distress. It was therefore with a great sense of liberation that modern man was taught the modern use of the Bible. And here he's uh, referencing Harry, the very, very famous. He's not known today, but he was super famous in the 1920s. Harry Emerson Fostick, the modern use of the Bible, a total liberal, a total heretic, a total Satanist. Men no longer needed to believe in Elijah's literal levitation into the sky. They were no longer bound by the bands of the narrow intellectual contingency. Consistency, excuse me. Intellectual consistency. Notional truth was replaced by the images of a sanctified imagination. There are two remarks that may be made at this point. The first is with respect to the claim made by those who believe in the Bible in the traditional sense. They do not claim that the versions or translations have been inspired by God. They claim only that the autographs were thus inspired. They do not hold to any dictation theory of inspiration. They hold to the personality of each writer of Scripture was allowed full play. They claim only that the prophets and apostles of Scripture were guided by the Spirit of God and that what they wrote was therefore infallible. Accordingly, Orthodox Christians do not expect that they will be able to solve without residue every problem that may be raised with respect to the phenomena of Scripture. But this fact does not make them doubtful of the truth of their fundamental claim. They are willing to wait till the foundations of the rival position are investigated. This leads to a second remark. On what positive ground, we ask, do men stand when they, with such confidence and assurance, reject the traditional view of Scripture? The confident rejection of this view is unintelligible unless those who make it, the, it have themselves offered something better. More than that, such a rejection is without meaning unless men can show that they themselves have a final interpretation of the facts of the phenomenal world to offer. How do men know that the doctrine of creation out of nothing is not true unless they themselves can take us back of history and tell us what is there? Or unless they can assure us that nothing is there? Karl Barth may assume, may assure us that he cannot believe in a speaking serpent any more than it can anyone else. How does he know that God has not created the physical and the animal world? How does he know the phenomenal world works according to the impersonal laws and is therefore not accessible to special intervention on the part of God? Again, Bart may assure us that the idea of the temporal creation must be rejected because it is not possible to think of it in a logically coherent fashion. In doing so, he rejects historic Christianity because it does not meet the false test of 18th century rationalism. As for his own system, he would not, not for all the world have its truth or falsity tried by such a test. But more important than this inconsistency is the point that men who say that creation cannot have happened, that Christ cannot have it plastered into the clouds toward heaven, must themselves claim omniscience. They must have such an exhaustive knowledge of the facts of the phenomenal world and of the possibilities behind these facts as to enable them to understand all their relations to all other facts, both past and future. They must be sure of what does happen in ultimate reality in order to be able to say that God does not have anything to do with the origin or control of the phenomenal world. I mean, it's amazingly, uh, it's amazingly arrogant 
these people, evolution has been proved. Well, most certainly hasn't been proved. And theories surrounding the Big Bang, they have no idea what really happened. It's pure speculation. If God, when God said, let there be light, and that the light was caused by a giant explosion, well, maybe that's true, but uh, we can rely on what the Bible says. We cannot rely on speculations of modern science. They make it up as they go along. In believing the Bible and its teachings as they do, traditional believers humbly offer their interpretation of life in the name of God, whose mind and thoughts are higher than men's mind and thoughts. They do not claim to understand one fact in the phenomenal world exhaustively. They do not claim to understand the facts of nature exhaustively any more than they claim to understand miracles exhaustively. But they appeal to the Creator and control over the world as the one who, because of his creation and control of the world, does understand all things in it exhaustively. They admit the existence of mystery in all things for themselves, but they do not admit the existence of mystery in anything for God. Accordingly, they do not pretend that they can reduce the revelation of God, the relation of God to the, to the world in the world, to the world to a system that they themselves can exhaustively understand. They recognize gladly that all things end in mystery for them, but they hold that unless they may be believing the Bible and therefore in the that unless they may believe in the Bible and, therefore, in the God of the Bible. Okay, we know the truth. We know actual truths as far as they go. We don't know things exhaustively. We're not omniscient. And the God of the Bible, who controls whatever come, whatsoever comes to pass, and all things would end in ultimate mystery for them. They would rather admit relative mystery from the start and with respect to everything, then claim virtual omniscience at the beginning and end with mystery, ultimate mystery at the last. They fear that such will be the case with those who claim to know the laws of the phenomenal world so well as to be able to say that God cannot have created it and does not control it, which is just, just outright outrageous and just ridiculous. It's purely an assumption based on atheistic unbelief. B. Personalism. We turn now to the second aspect of the position of those who hold to the modern view of history in its relation to Christianity. It is the aspect of pure contingency. It's from pure chance. It is also, therefore, the aspect of pure personality or of selfhood. This realm of the personal is said to stand in independence over against the world of physical phenomena. In two great works, Studies in the Philosophy of Religion and A Sacramental Universe, the late Archibald Alan Bowman has defended the independence of the realm of selves over against the realm of physical phenomena. Here's a quote. Any attempt to qualify the quantity of the spiritual and the physical, any monistic prejudice which tends to obscure the absoluteness of the cleavage between these two ultimate modes of being is fatal to an understanding of either and is indeed apt to issue not in genuine monism, but in a dualism more invidious than that which is designed to obviate. And that's from a Sacramental Universe, Oxford, 1939. The selves of this realm must not be taken as known by the method of psychological inspection, biological observation and experiment, or historical investigation. The nature of man as an individual must be defined in relation to the human race. And the method of defining man in terms of the race is by the philosophy of symbolic forms. By a philosophy of symbolic forms. 
<coughs> the philosophy of symbolic form starts with the presupposition that if there is any definition of the nature or essence of man, this definition can only be understood as a functional one, not a substantive one. We cannot define man by any inherent principle which constitutes metaphysical essence, nor can we d define him by any inborn faculty or instinct that may be ascertained by empirical observation. Man's outstanding characteristic, his distinguishing mark, is not his metaphysical or physical nature, but his work. It is this work, it is a system of human activities which defines and determines the circle of humanity. And that's Ernst Cassier, an essay on man, New Haven, 1944. Cassier tells us that it is uh, to great historians that we owe this modern definition of man as identical with his work. It is the gift of the great historians to reduce all mere facts to their fury. All products to processes, all static things for institutions to their creative energies. End of quote. That's another quote. C. R.G. Collingwood. Evantel, uh, he, he quotes men that were popular in the 30s and 40s, of which are pretty much forgotten today, but uh, he makes good points on that. So he's, he's, he's critiquing these views. He's not advancing these views. At, glan at glance, at one of these modern historians tends to corroborate this contention. In his brilliant survey of modern views of history, the late R.G. Collingwood asserts the historian's freedom, both from all authority and from all objective data in the traditional sense of the term. Quote, For the historian, there can never be authorities, because the so-called authorities abide in a verdict which, can, which only he can give. End of quote. This gives him great freedom. Moreover, he is also free from bondage to data that exist prior to his interpretation of them as in history. Quote, there are properly speaking no authorities, so there are properly speaking no data. End of quote. The web of imagine, and here's another quote, the web of imaginative construction is something far more solid and powerful than we have hitherto realized. So far from real Relying for its validity upon the support given of facts, it actually serves as a touchstone by which we decide whether facts are genuine. And you can see here how what Van Til's critiquing develops in this, really develops into this modern theory that there is no factuality, it's all subjectivism, it's all simply made up by man. It is thus the historian's picture of the past, the product of his own a priori imagination, that has to justify the source's use in its construction. And that's another quote. Giovanni Gentili expresses a similar point of view when he says, quote, A fact is by definition a quad factum est, perfectum, that is to say it is something past and no longer real. <coughs> End of quote. The historian is, not therefore, is therefore not bound by any such matters as authorities or objective data, whether past or present. They are to be sure authorities and there are data, but they receive their meaning for the historian when, they, when he has related them to his present experience. And all experience is present experience, and as such, self-authenticating. Radically subjective. It's just radically subjective. The historical past is the world of ideas which the present ex evidence creates in the present. And that's, uh, our, that's Collingwood again. D, Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth's generally forgotten, among, especially among conservatives today, but uh, he was huge in the, the 40s and 50s the 30s through the 50s. It is wholly in line with this modern philosophical notion of pure contingency that Karl Barth has used the freedom of God as the main interpretive principle of his Kirschlicht Dogmatique. 
Bart constantly militates against every form of system. God has not given any permanent or final revelation of himself to man. If he had done so, he would not thereafter uh, have been free in his actions. And God wants to be free to turn into the complete opposite of himself for the help of man. He is wholly identical with his revelation in action towards man. He is what he is in action toward and within man and within men. Corresponding to this notion of the freedom of God is the freedom of man. Man, too, is nothing except that he is in action. He is what he is in his action in relation to God. Now, keep in mind, he would say things like, well, there is revelation in the Bible. We find revelation in the Bible. And, and therefore, by modernists, he was considered quite conservative. But his system is just as radically unbiblical as modernism. Continuing. It is of special importance to observe that the freedom of man is for Bart the same in character as the freedom of God. Man's freedom and participation in the attributes of God through Christ is the participation of the attributes of God through Christ. Of this we will speak more fully presently. For the moment we are concerned to intimate for Bart, no less than for modern philosophers, the real subject of predication is reality or being as such. If God is free, then man is free, with the same sort of freedom with which God is free. Both participate in the same being. And uh, this led him to a sort of Christomonism and all sorts of crazy heresies. And this is an explicit denial of the creator-creature distinction in which Van Til emphasizes in other places. E. Alan Richardson. It is in line with this modern philosophical notion of pure contingency that Alan Richardson speaks when he says, in criticism of the older liberalism, quote, It is our contention that if modernism is redeemable, it is to be a potential force in the making of the religion of the future. It must not be a theory, a corpus of conclusions, a set of liberal dogmas, or even a series of liberal principles. It must be a spirit, an ethos, a method. End of quote. One may thus believe what he pleases as long as he has the proper spirit. We shall presently note that this proper spirit requires the rejection of all the doctrines of historic Christianity. But for the moment, we are concerned to note the apparent attractive promise of absolute freedom that is held out to weary pilgrims by those who live in the realm of pure contingency. F. Daniel Lamont. It is to be greatly regretted that men of great stature in the church have allowed themselves to be trapped by the attractive pr promise of freedom offered by modern philosophy. A case in point is that of the late Daniel Lamont. In his book, Christ in the World of Thought, he seeks to make Christian concepts relevant to the mind of the modern man. For that purpose, he works out a dimensional philosophy similar to that of Karl Heim. There's first, he says, the dimension of the I-my world. It is the realm of the personal that is the finitely personal. But then there is the dimension of the I-thou. It is the realm of the impersonal. With it fits the observer attitude. Finally, there's the dimension of the I-absolute. Now, the relation between man and God takes place exclusively in the present. The absolute is the eternal present. The present is the realm of the personal. Whatever exists in the present exists in the non-objective form, in a non-objective form. And that's from his um, Christian thought, Christ in the World of Thought, Edinburgh, 1934. Whatever exists in the present in non-objective form, the present defies the, observer's, the observer attitude all objects are in the past. On the basis, we are not surprised to find that Lamont agrees with Schleiermacher, a radical liberal German theologian, 
that the essence of revelation is not communication of doctrine, but impartation of life. End of quote. That's a quote from Schleiermacher. No revelation could come to us from the past, for everything which passes from my present through my corridor into my object moment has the stamp of an imperfect race as well as the stamp of an imperfect self upon it. For Lamont, Lamont then, as for Bart, the, contract, the contact between God and man must come exclusively through subjective confrontation in the present. It is here that all the limitations and relativities of the objective past are said to fall away. It is argued that the very idea of revelation is undoubted confrontation with God cannot otherwise be maintained than by putting it thus in the realm of the personal, the spiritual, the present, by completely liberating it from the contact with the past and any authoritative interpretations of the past. <laughs> Just stop for a moment. What do we get? Pure subjectivism, man creating his own form of Christianity that has nothing to do with reality, that has nothing to do with what is true. G. Phenomenalism. It is perfectly true that the modern theologian does not altogether and in every sense break his connection with the world of objects and of the past. To this we shall return presently. For the moment we have taken the notion of pure contingency by itself just as before we took the notion of pure rationality by itself. It is only by thus analyzing each ingredient of the compound with which we are concerned by itself and its properties can be seen for what they are. Above it was shown that the modern man was in a rationalist mood. When the modern man was in a rationalist mood, he was assured that all the doctrines of historic Christianity were totally wrong. They did not meet the standards of autonomous human reason. They did not meet the standards of man making up as he goes along autonomously. It didn't please him, so he rejected it. Now it appears that when he is in a, in a rationalist mood, he seems to be favor, favorably disposed to those same doctrines. He beckons the pilgrim to come into his realm. With great gusto, holds aloft the banner of true freedom for all. If they will only come into the realm of pure contingency, Christians may hold to the doctrines, one, of the creation out of nothing, two, of the providence of God over all things, three, of the special revelation of God through the historic life of Christ, and four, of the death and resurrection of Christ. A good deal is said by way of criticism on the static notions of the Greeks. A good deal is said by way of praise for Christianity with its ideas of dynamic rela relation of God to his people. It seems to many Orthodox Christians as though the modern view of history, contained as it does so large an element of contingency, is particularly favorable to the idea of unique revelation of God through the Christ of history. It is obvious, however, that a Christianity that comes to expression through the idea of pure contingency is no Christianity at all. The holy other God of Bard is holy without meaning for man. The holy, unique Christ of the, of the contingency thought of Bruner is a purely single thing about which nothing can be said. And I'm just going to stop for a moment. Uh, those people who have taken statements of Van Til relating to analogical thinking and univocal thinking and tried to say that he's really teaching the same thing as Karl Barth or Bruner. Those people are radically wrong, and here's proof of it. Now, whatever you think of his statement on uh, univocal versus analogical thinking, whatever you think of that, he clearly did not hold uh, to the idea that people can't really know God. Now, he would say, you can't know God exhaustively. We're not God. It takes God to know God exhaustively. But we have facts. We have facts given to us by the Bible, and these facts are true, and we can actually know them as real truth. Continuing. 
the exclusively present confrontation of God and man is exclusively private and purely mystical. In the idea of pure contingency, there is no room for any sort of criterion by which truth may be set over against falsehood. Christianity could in no sense on this basis claim to be the true religion. All religions would be true and all would be false. The freedom promised by the idea of pure contingency is the freedom of anarchy. I mean, what it is, it's the freedom of making man God and man creating his own law and man creating his own reality and man determining for himself what, what is acceptable as a fact. Brute factuality means that facts are not created and controlled by God. They become uh, controlled by man. And man, they, they become defined by man for whatever man determines they are, totally arbitrarily, subjectively. It is to be expected, therefore, that the promise of freedom for believers in the traditional view of Scripture will not actually be kept. The view of history held by recent writers is not exclusively that of pure contingency. The realm of the personal is always somehow said to be related to the realm of the impersonal. Man has a body as well as a soul. He is referred to and dependent upon the realm of pure determinism as well as upon the realm of pure indeterminism. If Christians are therefore given permission to believe in the authority of Scripture, in the doctrine of providence, and in the miraculous work of Christ, they will be asked to modify these doctrines so as to have them conform to the particular view of the mixture of pure determinism and pure indeterminism, of pure rationalism and pure irrationalism. That is in vogue today. H. Herbert Butterfield So, for instance, Herbert Butterfield graciously gives Christian, Christians permission to believe in the doctrine of providence. He studies secular history, including the facts of the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth, so far as these fall in the realm of such secular history. He finds that history has a way of going on over our heads. There is much of determinism in it. He also finds that much change is accomplished in history by the deeds of man. There is much of indeterminism in it. Why should we then not speak of their, of, not speak as if there was a universal mind directing man's affairs in general, leaving room for the freedom of the will of man? And here's a quote. It is better, better worldly wisdom, even when we are only looking for a pictorial presentation, to think of history as, uh, as though an intel, intelligence were moving over the story, taking its bearings afresh, after everything men do, and making its decision as it goes along, decisions sometimes unpredictable. You notice he says it. And carrying our purposes further than we wanted them to go. End of quote. Uh, and that's Christianity and History by Butterfield, 1949. Will not Christians, and this is back to Van Til, will not Christians feel relieved when they are thus uh, authorized by an outstanding historian to hold their doctrine of the providence of God? only if they are willing to compromise that doctrine beyond recognition. I. Revelation. It is precisely this that the modern theologian is willing to do. He wants by all means to make Christianity relevant to our age. Relevancy means more to him than truth. The idea of revelation is much in vogue in our day among modern theologians, but the transcendent God of Karlheim and the holy other god of Karl Barth have not created the world, do not control the world, and do not in any sense determine the destiny of men. They are pure fragments of man's imagination. They have no attribute except just are assigned to them by man. And they are assigned definite attributes in terms of the philosophy that excludes the god of the scriptures. And therefore, he who holds to such duties is not permitted to hold to the god of scripture. And to the promise of freedom to the orthodox believer is not kept.
he is not permitted to the hold of the God of Scripture. He is not allowed to the hold of the Christ of Scripture. Richardson may say that the new modernism must not be set, set of doctrines or even a set of principles, but he forthwith proceeds to put forward a set of principles and of doctrines. As Christians are liberated, with quotes around it, from the old narrow outlook, they will embark upon the venture of reordering society upon a new, a new and divine plan. And that's uh, the redemption of modernism. The task before the church in our generation is that of realizing the values of the Christian gospel to modern social life. It is to create a community which shall live on the basis of the eternal rather than the temporal, on the basis of the social well-being rather than the ind individual self-satisfaction. And that's the uh, a quote from the redemption of modernism. And if the spirit of the eternal seems too abstract to have any meaning, it will no doubt become concrete as current social theories build it, build in total independence of God, uh, built in total independence of God of Scripture, develop. Okay, let me just stop for a moment. <clears throat> You're an evangelical, and you look at the news, and you and you un and you see that uh, modernists, Christian liberals, these are the people that don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, and you see they support they supported Marxists in Angola that killed Christian missionaries. They're in favor of sodomite rights. They're in favor of homosexual marriage. They have homosexual and lesbian pastors and bishops and so forth. And you say, how can this be? I mean, it's so obviously contrary to the word of God. It explicitly contradicts Christian ethics. It explicitly contradicts the law of Moses and the moral law of God as revealed in Scripture. And the answer is, these kind of theories. They don't believe in true truths revealed to man that are unchangeable, that we must merely believe and submit to and obey. They don't believe in that. They believe that we participate in determining truth, and we create our own truth. They don't believe that the Bible's reliable. When I was living in Lansing, uh, before I would, uh, when I was getting ready to preach, uh, I would listen to a, uh, they had a radio show of a modernist, liberal Presbyterian church in Lansing. And I would listen to this guy's sermons while I was getting ready to, you know, getting dressed and shaving and everything. And he preached a whole sermon on why the Bible's not the Word of God, and why we shouldn't believe in miracles, and why we shouldn't believe in the resurrection. And he insisted that that was the true form of Christianity. And the question is, by what authority? He's denied everything in the Bible. Why should we believe anything he says? And the answer is, we should not. And then we come to a new section, the modern gospel. The broad features of the Christian gospel as visualized by the modern mind include, therefore, at least such points as the following. Number one, mankind, it is said, has a common origin from some form of animal ancestry. Okay, that's evolution. Creation ex nihilo is, said, is not to be accepted. The idea of creation is to be accepted, but as some form of saga, as a pictorial presentation, that is, as an ancient myth. Or, or some would say it's poetry, poetic myth. This is the general view of men such as Bart, Bruner, Reinhold, Niebuhr, Niebuhr, and many others. The idea of saga allows the physical, biological, and psychological aspects of man to be interpreted in purely impersonal, non-Christian terms. Saga is said to deal with the realm of the personal, the realm of the pure contingency. If anything intelligible is to be said about this realm, and therefore about man's origin, it has to be done in terms of categories of impersonal science. And if this world of impersonal science, nothing is intelligible. Nothing intelligible can be said unless everything is said. And let me just say, uh, uh, when, the, when the modernist speaks of the resurrection of Christ, 
This is how they do this. He doesn't speak of uh, Jesus literally rising from the dead, coming out of the tomb bodily. The man who died on the cross for our sins, who was placed in a tomb, who rises on the third day and comes out and he appears to his disciples, a literal bodily resurrection. He doesn't, he speaks of the resurrection, but he reinterprets it according to some form of, it's, it's teaching us something about our liberation, but it has nothing, but they don't actually believe in a literal resurrection. And beloved, if you don't believe in a literal resurrection, you're not a Christian. If you deny the literal resurrection, you deny the cross. And if you deny the cross, you deny Christ. And if you deny Christ, you have nothing of biblical Christianity in you at all, other than terms redefined according to this modernistic philosophy. And in this world of impersonal science, nothing intelligible can be said unless everything is said. In other words, the world of pure contingency or personality is the world of the entirely single thing. There's uniqueness, but such uniqueness as is meaningless. Therefore, this world of pure contingency must be brought into relation with the world of the impersonal, of pure determinism, and of pure rationalism. But as soon as the spiritual truths of the world of personality are taken out of the present, they freeze into the deterministic objectivity of the dead past. If the soul speaks, it is, alas, no longer the soul that speaks. Number two. In the second place, the modern mind suggests that all mankind has evil in it by virtue of its fine, fine attitude. There is no original perfection in the historical paradise. The Christian who accepts, uh, accepts of the favors of modern thought, either in the form of pure rationalism or in the form of pure contingency or in the form of a combination of these two, will have to give up his idea of Adam and Eve as historical figures. Okay, and this is universal among modernists. This is universal among Christian liberals. Adam and Eve are metaphors to teach us, they're, they're myths to teach us something about humanity. They're not literal at all according to their system. Bart assures us that he cannot believe in a speaking serpent. Bruner affirms that in thinking of the fall of man as historical, orthodox believers reduce man's responsibility to biological and physical, and therefore to deterministic categories. Orthodox Christians are told that the fall took place, or rather is taking place, in the realm of the spiritual, the realm of the present. Each man, says Kierkegaard, is in the same place where Adam is said to be, in the pictorial presentation of the Old Testament. And what is that but a radical Pelagianism? It's a radical Pelagianism. It's a denial of, the, or, or, of original sin. It's a denial of total depravity. And it not only completely rejects the Word of God, the Bible, which is infallible and inspired, it also is a rejection of reality. It's a rejection of what we know to be true, simply from what we observe around us about man. <clears throat> Thus, in the modern view, in rejecting the orthodox view of the origin of sin on account of its irrationalism, its supposedly mythological character also rejects the orthodox view on account of its rationalism and determinism, because it relates man to the general plan of God. The modern view then substitutes its own irrationalism, its notion of pure contingency, for the irrationalism of orthodoxy, and, and that's irrationalism with quotes around it, and its own rationalism, its impersonal fate, for the rationalism of orthodoxy. Each man is said to be his own Adam. As such, each man originates sin in the absolute sense. Nothing can be said about him while he is in the state of pure contingency. In that realm, how could man know himself and his responsibilities? Those questions must not be asked. Or, if they are asked, they are at once answered in a purely rationalistic terms. 
For the purely individual self, floating in the pure vacuum of pure irrationality, must be somehow related to the man related to the man called John Brown in the phenomenal world. And this relationship cannot, on the modern view, be expressed in any other purely rationalistic or deterministic terms. And what Van Til is doing here is quite brilliant. Uh, their critique of historic Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, uh, could equally be applied to anything they say. So it's just a bunch of people spouting forth complete nonsense that's meaningless. Three. In the third place, says the modern mind, all mankind is being saved through Jesus Christ. To be saved does not mean to be free from the wrath of God. Man is not guilty in the orthodox sense of the term. When Reinhold Niebuhr speaks of original sin, he is careful to warn his readers that this is not taken as the literalists take it. A. To be saved in the modern theological circle means being lifted up in the scale of being. It is to become eternal from being temporal. But to become eternal is not to become static. It is to be always active in making progress toward a set goal. This goal cannot be defined except in terms of pure negation, and particularly in terms of negation of the Orthodox Christian position. To be sure, the goal is to glorify God, but nothing can be said about the nature of God. That is, nothing different can be said about God than about man. The moment that which is different about God is said it is no longer God of whom it is said. Therefore, there is no information available to man as to what God desires man to do. There is no criteria of judgment between right and wrong. No one can say of any set of propositions that God has said them. And if they are a set of propositions, they are not of God. If God has spoken his will, it is no longer God that has spoken. God is wholly hidden in his very revelation. This is particularly true of the revelation of God in Christ. Bart, Karl Barth, is most insistent that he who in any way tampers with the wholly hidden character of the revelation of God in Christ has wholly missed the meaning of the Christian gospel. Yet though he has thus insisted on the fact that no one knows what Christ is and what it means to be saved, he is certain that Christ has saved all men and is saving all men. And that this is done, not done by the way orthodox theology says men are saved. Of course, Barth knows very well how men are saved. It is, he virtually argues, by man's participating in the being of God. There is nothing else said he could say on this general, on his general assumptions. That is to say, it is a salvation of man by man. For on the modern view, God is no more than a hypostatization of man's own ideals. The God of the modern view of God, the God of the modern view, is a God of whom nothing can be known, who can express his will, who cannot be sinned against, and who therefore cannot forgive sins or do anything to help man in his needs. He has no power over the world. He could not punish man if he would. In any case, he would not because he does not exist in any sense that means anything to man. And in uh, Van Til's great book on Karl Barth, he, he goes into great detail. He, he, Barth teaches Christomonism. Everybody is saved. There, there is nobody in hell. Everybody is saved by Christ. It's a Christomonism. Everybody participates in the special being. And then B. As according to the modern view, all men are saved. So it is also said that all are saved. For the modern view, the idea of orthodox theology that some men are saved and others are not saved is immoral and intellectually inconceivable. It is at this point especially that the realm of pure freedom or contingency is itself invaded by the adherents of the modern view with their tools of pure determinism and rationalism. It is surely impressive to watch the great theologians of the freedom of God, Karl Barth, the great theologian of the freedom of God, Karl Barth, argue with vehemence for the absolute impossibility of the existence of any man that is not saved. 
the great stress in his anthropology is that self-consciousness involves Christ-consciousness. Man cannot be man unless he is a sinner. He is a sinner in virtue of his finitude, but neither can man be man unless he is saved in Christ. Nothing can be said about the pure individual. He must be related to the pure universal. To be sure, nothing can be said about a pure universal. It must be united to the pure particular. But when the pure particular is somehow, no one knows how, joined to the pure universal, then we have the individual. He alone insists all individual men that exist must be by way of participation in the individual. Capital, capital letters. It is this great discovery of Kierkegaard that is offered as the panacea of all the individual and all the socialism of men by Niebuhr, by Barth, by Brunner, by a host of others. Yet when analyzed into its component parts of pure determinism and pure indeterminism, this notion of the individual appears to offer to man nothing but autosotirism. That means self-salvation, autosotirism, salvation. There's no salvation by Christ. You save yourself. Christ is really not needed at all. Man must lift himself up by his own shoelaces. On this view, men are, of course, in no way dependent on the accidents of history. For example, on hearing the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth as the only name that is given unto men by which they may be saved. The Christ, then, is everywhere present. The unique historical revelation of God in Christ is said to be virtually present to those who have never heard of him, as well as to those who have. He is present in forgiving grace, basically as much as to those like Judas Iscariot deny him, as to those who, like Peter, accept him. In all men there is a potential faith or they would not be men. And it is faith that counts, whether it is attached to objective facts, such as the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, or not. In fact, such data as the death and resurrection of Christ must be, in any case, be so interpreted as to be happening now and everywhere in every man and every man else, we are told. They do not have any meaning. I mean, this is taught in seminaries, folks. This, this was super pop. Bart was super popular. He was probably the most famous theologian uh, at one time in, 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 uh, in seminary, seminary circle, liberal seminary circles. See, it is thus that we have reached the Christological interpretation of the gospel record, which is so popular in our day. Orthodox believers are given freedom to believe in Christ and in the unique nature of his work. But that once-for-all character of the work is a once-for-all nature of reality as a whole. The Christ of the modern view stands for the ideal perfection of mankind according to the currently accepted social views. Not all modern theologians go as far as does Boltman in his reduction of the New Testament message to the categories of ex existentialist philosophy. But it, but it is not so much to say that the current modern view holds with modern philosophy in general to the ultimacy of time. God himself is said to be in and to have history. Redemptive history, argues Oscar Coleman, has no eternity back of it and has no eternity before it. All reality is through and through temporal. There is no great difference between the view of Coleman and that of Boltman or the view of Karl Barth. And he refers to Oscar Coleman, Christ in Time, 1950. In Christ, all men exist, and in Christ, all men are potentially saved. That is the message of the modern theologians. This message must be challenged as Paul challenged the wisdom of the Greeks in his day. For the message of the modern gospel is to all intents and purposes the same as the wisdom of the Greeks. Recent modern theology, and especially the recent emphasis on the so-called historical revelation of God and Christ, fits in with recent philosophy in general. Modern idealist philosophy is not radically different from ancient idealistic philosophy. 
Modern idealistic philosophy, no, no less than ancient idealistic philosophy, as the first Christians met it, will accept the message of Christianity only on condition of absorbing it into a larger coherence. Modern historians, such as Collingwood, Butterfield, and Jaspers, assume that the history of Israel is to be explained without residue in the same categories as is the history of other nations. And they assume that all history is to be explained in terms of itself without any reference to the existence of the God of Scripture, who controls all things that come to pass. It is in agreement with this general tendency to emphasize the ultimacy of time on the part of modern philosophy as a whole that modern theologians, particularly those of the school of Kierkegaard, stress the uniqueness of Christianity. But they do not fail to incorporate this uniqueness into coherence with a whole which reduces the uniqueness of the story of Paul the Apostle to the class of the uniqueness of all other religions. You just stop for a second. So how in the world do you say, well, now we understand why modernists, why liberals, why progressive Democrats, socialists, and so forth hate Bible-believing Christians? Because Bible-believing Christians reject all this stuff. All men are not saved. All men are not <laughs> God. All men do not determine for themselves what is good and evil. They hate Bible-believing Christianity because it, it radically differs from modernistic thought where the homosexuality is holy, uh, where the criminal is accepted. Our society has gone mad because it has accepted this philosophy. Continuing. The criteria of truth, says Bowman, must be that of the adequacy of concept. There must be no claim on the part of any religion that, alone, that it alone is true and the others are false. Truth and falsity are relative concepts, and who, and who knows what is the nature of truth. No one does. Everyone is searching for it. As contingent history is admitted to have no criterion within itself, man is regarded as holy and exclusively historical. Christ is holy and exclusively historical. God is holy and exclusively historical. And the historical has no criteria within itself. And yet it is on this basis, which admittedly is no basis, that Orthodox Christianity is rejected. Let me just stop for a moment. When liberals discuss Christianity in Christ and the apostles and the formation of biblical New Testament Christianity, which took place in the first century. When they discuss this, they automatically presuppose that the Bible is not the word of God, that it's myths, that it was made up long after the death of Christ and the apostles and is complete nonsense. And then they impose their own philosophy. And therefore we get this idea that Paul simply made it up. Paul and Peter differed, and Peter, Peter was really following more of a Jewish way of thinking, and Paul uh, intruded into Greek thinking and invented the gospel. And so it's all complete nonsense. Continuing. It is thus that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world in the modern day, no less than that he did in the day of Paul. Instead of accepting the favors of modern man, as Romanism and, Ar and Arminianism has done, we should challenge the wisdom of this world. It must be shown to be utterly destructive of predication in any field. It has frequently been shown to be such. It is beyond the possibility of the mind of man to bind together the ideas of pure determinism and pure indeterminism, and by means of that combination to give meaning to life. Either modern man will have to admit that he knows everything, or else he will have to admit that he knows nothing. The only alternative to this is that he claims both absurdities at the same time. And just stop for a moment. Why is it that in particular Democrats, who are more consistent humanists. You can't believe anything they say. They lie 
you know, uh, I remember when Clinton was president, whenever he gave a speech, you know, uh, how did you know he was lying? Well, his mouth was open. Uh, the same is true of Joe Biden. When you, when you believe this modernistic view of reality, that you create your own reality, and that you determine for yourself what is good and evil, then lying becomes commonplace because lying is accepted because you're creating, the, the lies aren't really lies in your worldview because you're doing it for the greater good. So you can be a habitual liar, nothing you say is true, and that's what men do. That's how Democrats work. That's how they operate. The only alternative is to say that both are uh, to claim both absurdities at the same time. Let us again remind ourselves that what has been said does not mean that Christians are not in themselves wiser than other in themselves wiser than other men. What they have, they have by grace. They must be all things to all men. It is not kindness to tell patients they need strong medicine that nothing serious is wrong with them. Christians are bound to tell men the truth about themselves. That is the only way of bringing them to recognize the mercy of compassion of Christ. For if men are told the truth about themselves, and if they are warned against the false remedies that establish men in their wickedness, then by the power of the Spirit of God, they will flee to Christ, through whom alone they must be saved. And that's the end of this wonderful little lecture. When you tell sodomites that they're wonderful people and they're not doing anything wrong, and you put your stamp of approval on sodomite marriage and transvestite perversions and all these crazy things, you're not doing anybody any favors. You say you love them and you care about them and you care for about the community and it takes a village and all this stuff. No. If you love somebody, if you want to have compassion on that person, tell them the gospel. Tell them the law, which defines sin, so we know what sin is. And then tell them the gospel, which is the only remedy to get, deal with the guilt, penalty, and liability of punishment of sin. It's the only way to do that. And then, of course, it frees us from the bondage of sin as well. So Christ is the solution. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our beloved brother. And that Hillenous works, we pray that they will continue to have an effect. And we pray that Westminster will repent and uh, fire all those teachers, such as David Van Drunen, who do not hold to Van Til at all, who hold to a semi-Roman Catholic view of, of uh, natural law. And so we, we pray that the OPC and the Westminster seminaries, East and West, will repent of their abandonment of these great truths. In Jesus' name, amen.